welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, one of the things that we have been writing about a lot and thinking about a lot reading the news lately is industrial policy, because it really is such, oh, yeah. a, such a big deal now with you know, the uh, IRA and the CHIPS Act and the states and then the the massive amounts of subsidies and, well, investment subsidies, call it what you want, that are being spent here on things like uh, battery plants for electric vehicles, this whole uh, clean energy transition. All of these things um, are getting a lot more attention and funding than they ever have. Uh, but at the same time, it's really hard to assess whether they're working or not and what outcomes we're supposed to be getting from them. Or whether they will work down the line, which is the intended goal. Like I, similar to you, the investments that the U.S. announced however long ago now in terms of the green energy economy slash transition, just billions and billions of dollars like opened the floodgates. And it's not just Canada trying to keep up. It's also now Europe and like everyone's involved and, you know, handing over billions and billions of dollars to these EV makers. And like you said, it's not totally clear on what the outcomes are going to be. And for me, having followed business news for quite some time now, it's also the first time that I've read about the government getting involved in such a big way to prop up in industry. It's the first time I've seen it. I don't know if you can think of anything comparable, but that's also interesting to me. Yeah, well, I think it has been kind of a paradigm shift in how governments and policymakers are thinking about the economy and issues like this. And certainly over the course of our lifetimes, uh, you know, the credo has been sort of let the market decide everything. And yeah, I think that's that's changed quite a bit. But, you know, it is... Uh, fairly fairly new that well but you know we still don't know a lot about how these policies are going to work how this is going to play out but we do have some researchers who are doing uh, really excellent interesting work at the cutting edge of this field and one of them is joining us today to walk us through her research on industrial policy and and what she's found with some uh, i would say pretty innovative methods of looking at industrial policies around the world and some of the outcomes associated with them. So Rika Yuhas is an assistant professor of economics at the University of British Columbia and the co-founder of the Industrial Policy Group, which is a research lab that's looking at empirical research around uh, industrial policy. Rika, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Uh, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So let's just start with the basics here. Can you explain what industrial policy is and how it's different from economic policy more generally? Sure. So actually, this is uh, this is quite a tricky question. And there is, I think, a fair amount of confusion um, amongst both academics and practitioners to what industrial policy actually is. The, the definition that um, I've used in, 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 in some of my work, and, and I think it's actually pretty helpful, is is not one that is based on kind of the particular policy instrument that is associated with industrial policy, but it's 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 sort of more abstract. So the way that we think about industrial policy 
is that it is sort of intentional government action that is directed at trying to change the composition of economic activity. That is, it's trying to change sort of the composition of what is produced domestically in the service of some sort of uh, public goal. So historically, that public goal has been um, fostering industrialization, boosting manufacturing, which is which is which is where the name comes from. But of course, that has evolved a lot over time. And so today, I think most people don't associate industrial policy just with efforts to boost um, specific sectors of of manufacturing, but 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 really any government action that is trying to purposefully and intentionally change what is produced domestically. It's interesting hmm. that you leave money out of that definition. And I'm wondering if there are economists that would disagree with you in the sense that it is government putting money towards kind of key industries. And maybe if you could talk about what those specific actions are if they're not money. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it often is associated with the government putting money towards certain industries. And that is that is certainly one type of industrial policy. Though I would also say that the government spends money on industries for lots of reasons, not just for industrial policy reasons, but a very good counterexample. And this was really kind of the, 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 the historically common use of, of, of industrial policy is tariff policy, right? Tariffs are actually uh, something that doesn't cost the government money. It's something that actually raises fiscal revenue. And by putting in place a, a protective import tariff, for example, you're raising the, the, the domestic price of that product. And, and in that way, you're, you're promoting and, and, and you're trying to incentivize the entry of domestic firms by sort of shielding them in this way from foreign competition. So that's sort of a good counterexample of a policy that actually, instead of costing money, raises um, fiscal revenue but may serve, in some cases, um, industrial policy. And that might be a good place to stay for a second to help tease out this distinction a little bit more. So that's an example of tariffs being used for industrial policy. Are there examples that come to mind of tariffs being that are, are not being used for industrial policy, just to make that distinction more clear? Yeah, so this is, this is where things get tricky, and this is why... My co-authors and I really try to sort of push back on associating individual instruments with industrial policy because, because the, 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 the correspondence works in neither direction. So tariffs historically have most often, I think, been used to, to raise fiscal revenue. So historically, in the 19th century, when, 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 when fiscal capacity was, was much more limited, uh, the, the, the main way for governments to raise uh, revenue was through through tariffs. And so that is why when you just look at the tariff schedule of a country, it's 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 particularly in developing countries today, it's not actually obvious that 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 a tariff is used for in industrial policy rationales. Okay. What about a policy like uh, the ten dollar per day childcare that the federal government here has pursued? You know, they've talked about how the goal is to help get more uh, women into the workforce, things like that. Would that be an industrial policy? So again, it kind of depends on what 
the intention of the policy make. The way I understand this policy initiative is 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 exactly as you say. It's 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 more to promote workforce participation without a particular sort of focus. It's not that 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 the government is trying to sort of change the structure of 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 what is produced domestically in a certain way. This is more about trying to get predominantly women, but 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 working parents in general. Um, mm. Back into the workforce more quickly. So, in that sense, that's sort of a that's sort of a policy that doesn't strike me as having obviously um, uh, industrial policy intentions. A similar sort of policy that does, I think, have very clear industrial policy intentions would be something like a lot of the workforce training that is tied to the Chips and Science Act in America that is trying to sort of train. Um, and, 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 and equip um, the workforce with the skills needed to do advanced semiconductor manufacturing. So that is also some sort of workforce policy, but because the intentionality is explicitly tied to semiconductor manufacturing, to changing the composition of economic activity, we would, I think, typically think of that as an industrial policy, whereas the $10 a day um, uh, childcare or daycare is 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 probably uh, uh, more of a, a general economic policy and not something that's that's industrial policy. Okay, that's a helpful clarification. That makes a lot of sense. Um, when it comes to the reasons that governments provide for industrial policy, I'm curious what are some of the common rationales and how have they evolved over time? Yeah, that's a that's 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 a great question. So modern economics has sort of a variety of kind of very widely accepted rationales for doing industrial policy. The most common one is 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 the classic sort of market failure. Um, this is just an instance of a case where, where 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 the market doesn't function well and the market doesn't provide socially desirable outcomes. So a good example um, to give here, is sort of the is 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 the climate crisis and carbon emissions, um, because because the 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 firm or the emitter of um, CO two emissions doesn't internalize fully um, the costs of 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 emitting CO two, um, we end up actually um, producing without without any sort of government intervention, just just in a free market system, we end up producing far more CO two than what is socially desirable, which is where there is there is then the rationale for for government to step in. There are many of these um, market failures that justify industrial policy intervention, and that is really kind of the classic uh, justification. Um, the, the the second one that we um, the second one that we sort of put down in a recent paper is activity-specific public inputs. So these these are things that economists, I think, typically think of more uh, as, as as what are known as horizontal policies. So think of something like building a port. Um, people typically think of that as kind of benefiting the economy at large mm -hmm. without sort of picking certain winners. But you know, in practice, when the policymaker is actually sort of choosing, you know, where to put a certain uh, infrastructure like a port, if they sort of explicitly take into consideration, well, there's this industry here that that, that really needs the port, then that is actually going to be industrial policy because they, 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 they choose sort of where that 
public input is going that's going to sort of go hand in hand with private production in a way that is kind of designed to favor a particular uh, industry. So, so that's, that's also, I think, another um, well-accepted uh, example of a justification for industrial policy. There's a strong argument against industrial policy, I think, among economists, which is basically that the government is unable or governments are unable to kind of pick the right industries to invest in. They don't know what they're doing and they just uh, end up wasting money and kind of distorting the economy. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is that is one of the one of the kind of classic pushbacks um, for why the government shouldn't be in the business of doing industrial policy. So if I need to sort of just sort of taking a step back, if I want to kind of think about where I think the disagreement is with economists, you know, people accept that these market failures exist. What you're talking about is, is you know, is the cure going to be worse than the, the disease? So, so they're talking about kind of government failure. If government comes in to try to fix this, is government just going to make a bigger mess of things? And I think there are two sort of primary reasons why people believe that the government may end up sort of making a really big mess of things. One is political capture. And the second one is the one that you're talking about. The government just doesn't have the type of information that it needs to be able to, 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 to pick these winners. So political capture, I think, is actually something that, 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 that is the bigger problem. With information problems, you know, I think that that just looking around the world today, you know, if, if you think about sort of what are the industrial policies that, that the policymakers are engaging in, they, they've chosen green industrial policy to confront the climate crisis. I think there's like very little debate amongst reasonable people that that is an industry that is subject to market failures for a wide variety of reasons. If we look at the boost, um, if we look at the push to kind of boost semiconductor capabilities um, outside of East Asia, there again, I think people can disagree about whether this is going to work or not. But there again, I think there's very little pushback as to whether the wh- whether the government is kind of picking an industry where where one could make a reasonable a reasonable case. So I think I think actually this 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 challenge of picking winners is 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 less of an issue in practice than 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 than, than people make out. I'm hoping that we could kind of talk a little bit about the other side of the argument through examples. And so it might be helpful to talk about some successful applications of industrial policy that has have kind of led us to this point. So in Canada's history, where have we seen those types of successes? Um, so that's actually a good question. I think there's some nice work that looks at uh, that looks at industrial policy in Canada through the use of tariff policy. I'm 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 blanking on the details a little bit, but my recollection is that they were looking at sort of uh, a period where ma- where where protective tariffs on manufacturing were raised in the late 19th, early 20th century, and they tend to find that 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 that, that the industries that received um, that received higher tariff protection, these manufacturing industries um, witnessed faster um, witnessed faster growth of, 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 of the sector. Beyond that, I think the best um, 
evidence we have comes actually from outside of Canada. So one um, one area, one one sort of canonical example of industrial policy that has received kind of a lot of academic attention and where there's been sort of, I think, a lot of high quality work is um, South Korea's heavy chemicals and industrial drive in the 1970s. So my co-author, uh, Nathan Lane at Oxford, has done some really nice work that shows that um, those industries in South Korea, which received this 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 really big industrial policy push, partly through um, credit lending, partly through um, a reduction in the input tariffs that they needed, so that the, the inputs that they needed to get the the manufacturing off the ground, that those those seem to have sort of shifted um, the comparative advantage. They seem to have shifted sort of what industries Korea was kind of dominant in in export markets. And I just want to sort of take a step back from kind of the wonkish details and kind of give you the context for Korea, because I think this is like, this is kind of a, 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 a really nice um, sort of teaching example in the we sense that <laughs> in the sense that that um, so so the Koreans were trying to do this heavy chemical and industrial drive for a long time. And no one believed that like a small, poor country that was really doing light manufacturing um, that had a very small internal market that they could get into this like very scale intensive uh, industries like 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 steel. This this was so much the case that like the World Bank refused to give loans for like the initial steel um, plants that they wanted to that they wanted to establish. So so it's 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 the reason this is nice is that it's kind of hard to make the case that that without the intervention, Korea was kind of on the cusp. Of, of, mm. of, 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 of these industries um, taking off. They eventually ended up using some Japanese um, reparations to fund the, the, the initial push. And you really see this kind of striking um, change in, 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 in what Korea uh, started to produce. And, 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 you know, many people know about the East Asia miracle, but it's, but it's kind of easy to miss that, that at the end of the Second World War, a lot of these East Asian countries, you know, South Korea in particular, was 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 as poor as African countries, and so this this kind of astonishing um, transformation, structural transformation, industrialization that they went through, is 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 really unprecedented at the time. Um, you know, only Japan up to that point had been producing growth rates and and, 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 and and progress in manufacturing that was similar. And, and what we're getting out of this new work, um, Nathan Lane is, 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 is sort of the first paper, but now there's sort of multiple papers that are analyzing this episode, is, is, is really that, that the government seems to have played a, a crucial role in partnering with the market to sort of facilitate this, 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 this transformation. Hmm. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned Asia as well, because I guess if we're looking at examples where government intervention has been helpful, I mean, like looking at China, you see enormous success in terms of economic growth and innovation. And that's a country where their government has their hands in every aspect of the economy. So is that obviously that's not a model that anyone can follow, but is is uh, what do you make of, I guess, the success in, in China, and is there anything uh, I guess that's interesting about that arrangement to you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think there as well, like you say, the 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 in some ways it translates not completely to the to, to the Western context, just because um the state is 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 of just course. sort of much more dominant. Um but I do think that that there as well we have some nice work from Ernest Liu at Princeton who has who has shown that that um at, at, at a kind of early stages of China's kind of economic miracle, the state also played a crucial role in targeting um, certain industries. And I think, I think my, my sort of read—I'm I'm not a China expert—but my sort of read of what the Chinese have done is that in, in, in many, many cases where you see kind of where you see their manufacturing prowess, you know, electric vehicles is just the latest example. There has been a plethora of 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 of, of government intervention. It's hard for me to look at China and not think that that industrial policy of this very kind of distinctive flavor with 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 a lot of kind of much more dominant state intervention that this this industrial policy has had likely a, 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 an important role to play. Are there any common traits that we can learn from uh, successful examples of industrial policy or from failed industrial policies? Uh, anything that is a, a common thread between those that we could apply? Yeah, I think that's a that's kind of the the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, this is where I think particularly research in economics has been lagging, and where where we desperately need. Uh, where we desperately need more research, but I think there are, I think there are a couple of themes that emerge. I mean, one thing I would say, just linking back to the to the Korean HCI example, is that is that what the Koreans pulled off is likely not particularly representative, in the sense that there's this nice paper by um, Bruce Blanningen in the Economic Journal which finds that these similar type of steel industrial policies in poor countries typically tend to hurt sort of downstream uh, producers export performance, which, 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 which is, is, is like a pretty strong signal that the industrial policy is, 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 is not producing kind of positive spillovers uh, mm. to the rest of the economy. So, so what, you know, it, it, it's an interesting question why the Koreans were able to do what most uh, developing countries were not able to do. I think there are sort of a couple of, I think there are a couple of kind of uh, clues as to as to what seems to be an important ingredient to successful industrial policy. One thing that I think many um, observers point to is 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 a requirement in the medium run. That, that, that firms and sectors that are receiving this type of support um, compete on international markets. Because, because I think the going back mm. to sort of what the threats and, 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 and what, the, what the pushback against industrial policy is, the, the, the push is that you're creating sort of a protected, cushy environment uh, for, your, for your firms, that it's really corporate welfare that is kind of wasting a lot of taxpayer money. And, 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 and so one one important thing seems to be that that the policymaker needs to be able to put in place a lot of kind of mechanisms via which you're really kind of 
trying to get these firms to do what you want them to do. So, 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 so one sort of obvious way to try and do that is to make sure that they're competing on international markets where they have right. to be producing products. They have to be, they have to be producing products that consumers want to buy. You know, if you have right. like a super high tariff wall, um, your consumers might need to use the, the, the very low quality uh, steel that you're producing. But, you know, no one in, in, in a world market where you compete with other producers is going to buy that stuff. So, 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 this, so export discipline seems to be sort of one important way in, in, in which you can get firms to, 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 to sort of uh, use the resources wisely and to, and, and to really sort of try to produce um, products that, 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 that have a market. Um, the other thing I think that is, that is important is that, you know, while I don't worry too much about the information problems, industrial policy should inherently be kind of a risky business and the government, much like sort of a venture capitalist is going to make some bad bets and, 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 and more so than sort of trying to prevent the government from making bad bets. What we should focus on is having mechanisms in place that, that, that make sure that the government is going to cut their losses. So, you know, take the hmm. example that um, Canada is now sort of putting a lot of subsidies into, into getting um, battery manufacturing uh, off the ground for electric vehicles. If that looks like it's not working in five to 10 years, there's going to be a lot of political pressure on, 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 on policymakers to keep the money flowing because you've created a lot of, jobs, you've created a lot of firms that are dependent on, on, on these subsidies, particularly if they're not working. But if they look like they're not working, the, 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 the right thing to do is to sort of cut your losses and, 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 and get out of there. And that's where sort of the political calculus becomes really tricky because the policymaker is not going to want to do this. And so, you know, there are, there are mechanisms that, that, that you can design to make sure that the policymaker does sort of, sort of, sort of, um, let the industries go that are not thriving. But that is, I think that is really where, where the tricky, where a lot of the tricky political um, problems come up. I, I have kind of a convoluted question and uh, I apologize in advance for that. But one of the things that stuck out to me reading one of your papers was this example of the metal shipbuilding industry in the United States yeah, and how that was developed, you know, for reasons that, uh, and for reasons that could not have been predicted at the time, ended up being a very useful thing to have when the Second World War rolled around. Um, and it sort of occurred to me as I was reading that, that you know there could be a lot of examples that are similar to this, where you're developing an industry that is going to have significant benefits down the road, but it's kind of hard to tell in the short term what those benefits are necessarily going to be. Um, so is there a challenge when it comes to even defining success in industrial policies or, you know, how do you do that in such a way that, um, you know, maybe you can account for some of these potential longer term benefits without chasing bad bets, as you say? Yeah, I think that's an, that's an excellent point. And it, it kind of comes back to why I think the definition of industrial policy that, that, that we use in our work is actually uh, helpful. So, so when you think about how we define industrial policy, 
it's kind of intentional government action made to or intended to shape what is produced domestically in the service of some goal. And what that goal is, I think, is, 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 is really important when we think about how we define the success of industrial policy. So if you take sort of the, the, the example of the U.S. transition from wood to metal shipbuilding, which is a, which is a, a nice paper by Walker Hanlon, you know, the, there I think that was not intentional industrial policy. But of course, we know that shipbuilding is, is an industry that has kind of national security benefits, that has military um, advantages, which is why a lot of, why a lot of countries um, prize having kind of domestic shipbuilding capabilities. And mm. so when we think about sort of what is the goal of this policy, is the goal of this policy that we want to have metal shipbuilding uh, in the country or that we want to have the capability to build sort of frontier uh, ships is the rationale that we think that, take the example of Canada, we think that Canada is particularly well suited to building ships. So this is something that we should be doing. Or we think, you know, it's in our national security interest to do so. So even if Canadian shipbuilding doesn't end up being super successful on international markets, we're still going to pour money into this because it's important that, that, that Canada has these capabilities. Those are two very different yardsticks, right? Mm. And I think that, that that translates well to sort of something that, 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 is, that is very relevant when we think about kind of the West's efforts in, 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 in acquiring advanced semiconductor capabilities. A lot of that has to do with the national security threat that countries perceive um, from, 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 from China. And so there as well, you know, it may be the case that, that 10 to 15 years down the line, we see countries like the US and, 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 and European develop some manufacturing capabilities in advanced semiconductors, but they may not be completely um, uh, competitive on international markets. And that's where I think there's going to be a potentially really difficult conversation about whether it makes sense to kind of keep these industries um, alive kind of indefinitely mm. if they need subsidies because the national security benefits are so big. So, so this is where I think what the goal of the policy is actually becomes extremely relevant. You know, is it that Canada wants to build up EV capabilities because they because because we think Canada has some sort of advantage in 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 in, in battery production? And or is it because this is a way that Canada is trying to sort of um, speed up the green energy transition? Again, those are two sort of different goals. They're not mm. incompatible, but how we measure success, I think, depends on what, what the goal of the policymaker is. Those are really interesting questions. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the situation that Canada kind of finds itself in. Uh, specifically within the context of industrial policy around EVs, whereas that a lot of these um, subsidies are exclusively also flowing uh, into companies that are not based uh, in Canada. So it, could we weigh maybe some of the maybe advantages or, or disadvantages of that, you know, that value proposition of funding an international company on Canadian soil? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think the the trade-off 
I'm not an expert on EVs. The the way I understand this trade-off is that uh, multinationals have some expertise in uh, EV and battery production. And so at this point in the game, if, 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 if sort of Canada wants to get a foothold um, in this industry, it seems much more realistic to use sort of the capabilities that multinationals already have and, and, and try to harness some of the spillovers that, that, that might accrue from um, the capabilities that, that 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 multinationals bring, of course, the multinationals are also bringing uh, they're bringing jobs and 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 they're bringing sort of their 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 expertise. So I, I think while while kind of this is kind of a a legitimate concern to have, I I don't think that that it's realistic to think about um, you know alternative domestic solutions given sort of where the industry is at right i want to ask you about your research specifically uh using large language models because i thought that was really interesting and uh how you use the that technology to uh analyze what countries uh what industrial policies countries were adopting in sort of a new way. Can you describe uh, how you did that and and what you found? Yes, certainly. So uh, basically, the the idea for this project came out of where we started this conversation, which is this difficulty of defining industrial policy. That is that becomes kind of a very practical problem when you try to evaluate industrial policy because the problems surrounding kind of uh, defining industrial policy then also translate into how you measure industrial policy. So typically right. people have measured industrial policy using using tariffs and and as we've discussed, tariffs have many um, tariffs are deployed for a variety of reasons, only one of which is industrial policy. and in the current day and age tariffs are likely not the most uh they're likely not the, the 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 where we should be looking for industrial policy um other instruments are, are, are more usually used so so what we sort of what what the idea for this project was was precisely that based on our definition which which has to do with kind of what the intent of the policymaker is, that industrial policy is very much kind of intentional state action that's trying to change the composition of economic activity, that very sort of naturally led itself to taking a text analysis approach because this kind of intent of the policymaker, you can't really get out of looking at different policy instruments. You know, you can look at subsidies, you can look at tax policy, um, you can look at tariff policy. They're not really going to tell you anything about the intent of the policymaker. Our idea was that by looking at the the descriptions of the policy policy, so what policymakers say when they actually implement uh, a, a, a policy, we're going to learn a lot more about this intentionality, which we think kind of gets to the heart of what industrial policy is. And so, so in this project, we we use um, an off the shelf. Um, mass database of commercial policies. And the nice thing about that is that we have these short 
um, descriptions of the policies. And so we're able to use a supervised machine learning model to try to classify at scale whether the intention of the policymaker for a particular policy um, accords with our definition um, or not. And so the mm. way the way we actually do this is we we we, we train some under, uh, we train some graduate students to hand classify a subset of the data. This is why it's supervised machine learning because we give uh, the model a training data set, and based on this training data set, um, what what the large language model is going to do is it's going to be able to learn sort of what our definition of industrial policy is and then apply it to kind of unseen data. And, and we see the large language model performing actually really well. And, 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 and we're able to sort of, for the first time, get some, some stylized facts about what industrial policy um, around the world looks like in the, in the past decade or so. And one of the things that uh, I, I saw in the paper was sort of a sharp uptick in the number of uh, industrial policies, I suppose, being adopted around the world around, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, 2018, I believe, was was the year. Um, what, what, what accounts for that, do you think? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I think the way I would characterize the, 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 the trend in the data is that from about 2010, which is when, which is really when our data starts, we see sort of industrial policy around the world kind of creeping up slowly. There's 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 one acceleration. In um, we're not entirely sure at this point. I think what what causes that, and then there's like a much more uh, striking acceleration uh, in 20 in 2020. Um, but I think this trend that we're in the world have been saying for years, which is that you know, even prior to the U.S.'s kind of very striking turn to industrial policy with the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, industrial policy has been on the rise globally um, at least since the financial crisis. And I think there's, you know, there's there's a variety of reasons for that. I think the the, the biggest reason, to my mind, is that after sort of decades of belief in, in 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 what the free market can deliver i think the last few years starting with the with the financial crisis and then kind of shock after shock after shock we're seeing that that the market in and of itself doesn't always deliver desirable outcomes some people have been um, uh, formulating this very nicely as you know not all types of growth are equal this belief that sort of growth is going to trickle down um, and, 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 and benefit everyone that really hasn't played out. You know, we see these striking increases in inequality in many, many countries. We see the hollowing out of middle-class jobs. Um, and then of course, sort of the elephant in the room has been, has been kind of the, the, the rising geopolitical tensions, um, with China and, 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 and I would put sort of on par with that. Um, just like a, a, a pretty sort of stark realization amongst amongst sort of policymakers around the world that the climate crisis is something that is also not going to be fixed easily um, without without government interventions. The market is not going to provide sort of a smooth transition to um, green energy, and so I think that's where we've seen first sort of this trickle, and then really this kind of outright. 
um, cascade of industrial policy with, 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 you know, the U.S. now leading the way in this kind of capital I, capital P industrial policy. I think that's a great place to leave it. Rekha, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Okay, well, Sarah, that was, I found that to be a fascinating conversation and uh, really learned a lot about how different un- industrial policies have unfolded. Learned a lot about South Korean industrial policy, which was, I, I want to do right. some more reading about that because that sounds super interesting. But what were your, Why what, don't what are your you thoughts? Why do go and see how yeah. it's rolled out in, <laughs> and see how it's developed? See firsthand. Uh, Right, exactly. Um, well, it, interestingly, like we keep seeing these like big numbers with billions attached to it. And so I, I really appreciate how we could kind of unpack that. Well, industrial policy doesn't actually always cost money. There's different ways for the government to get involved. There's different levers mm. that they can pull. Um, but what was interesting to me was what Rekha said was that this is really a moment where industrial policy is taking a bigger role and kind of because of this, I guess, realization that some governments and industries are having that, I guess, the market doesn't always deliver the best outcomes, which is something I kind of need to sit with because it challenges the way that the economy has worked for a very, very long time. Um, And it, I guess, explains why Governments are pushing so aggressively into, you know, the green economy where, you know, they're basically building an economy supported by manufacturing, supported by billions of dollars in investments that doesn't effectively exist yet. We're not clear on the demand quite yet. It's probably going to be forced by, you know, through various kind of policy interventions or laws and emissions goals and things like that, too. But it's so interesting because it's um, we, we just haven't we haven't seen this before. And it kind of challenges that thinking that, well, the market always has the answer. The market always works efficiently. If there is an industry that needs to exist, the market will make it so. And that's kind of the, the point points that I'm kind of thinking over right now. Yeah, well, it, I mean. Certainly, it seems like we forgot how to do industrial policy for for a very long time. I mean, at one point in time, I think we did have you know tariffs to protect certain sectors and things like that, uh, but that took a backseat for a long time as well. And now we're rediscovering uh, maybe the importance of some of these things in different forms and for different reasons, but nevertheless uh, directing the economy in in ways that you know we expect will benefit more people than it would just on its own. Well, it reminds me of our conversation with Benjamin Bergen, right? Because he's a guy that's really focused on semiconductors and kind of getting Canada in uh, on the supply chain there. And he kind of, you know, unpacked what, you know, kind of, I guess, policy interventions could look like there in the form of like investment. And I think that's an area that is equally of, uh, of, I guess, concern slash focus around the world that we haven't heard a lot about in Canada. And he was talking with us on like how, you know, how how investments in that sector um, have yet to kind of be realized, if I'm remembering it correctly, but it does take me back to that conversation and, and how, you know, it just seems like we're kind of all in on EVs right now, but there do need to be maybe other policies to um, you know, to support different types of kind of innovations um, that we've been kind of uh, that as a country, we've been kind of lagging behind relative to the rest of the world. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for sure. You know, I was struck by sort of 
uh, what Rika said about how we don't know a lot about what are the things that make an industrial policy successful. What are the things that yeah. make it a failure? You know, she mentioned a couple of the factors that seem to be uh, in play, but it certainly seems like an area that could use more more study. So we'll have to keep an eye on that and come back to it sometime in the future. Definitely. Okay, well, should we leave it there for now? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you like this episode, you can find all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And please do go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to leave us a positive review. It really helps us grow the show. We will see you next week.